Hi, this is Arnav. Welcome to the channel. Today we have Jameson with us. Jameson is one of the most influent, most influential people in the crypto space, and he he writes great blogs. He has a very active Twitter Twitter page, and he is involved in the community for a long time. And today we are going to talk to him more about how he how he views the current crypto system and what are his views on some interesting topics like lightning, fund security, and so on and so forth. So. Thanks, Jameson. First of all, for accepting our invitation to come on the call. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, can you start off by like talking about what are some projects that you're working on currently, and uh, yeah, wh wh where are you spending your most of the time in uh, in crypto currently? Uh, well, my my full time job is currently at Casa, uh, just um, you know overseeing the infrastructure and general uh, security model, you know design of uh, what we're building with our premium product, uh, which is this uh, non custodial multi sig vault. Um, then we also have uh, another product that we announced, did a pre sale for, and we'll start shipping in a week or so, which is the uh, uh, Bitcoin full node slash lightning node product um, that is kind of coming in on the exact opposite end of the market, uh, really targeting more of the, the uh, lower end enthusiasts you know, who, who would be willing to spend a few hundred dollars to get into to that uh, part of the ecosystem, whereas our, our high end product is um, more for the like crypto multimillionaire and basically $10,000 a year to get an extremely high level of uh, support and uh, a user-friendly high security solution for uh, vaulting their large amount of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it. Um, and like, uh, can you like talk about how you actually got into crypto and why, like, how did you start with Casa as well? It's been a, a pretty long journey. Um, originally got interested in 2012 just from reading Slashdot articles about it and um, realizing that the system was not uh, falling apart and failing as I had expected that it would. Uh, so I you know, started looking into it, reading the white paper, looking at some of the code, um, and just uh, trying to sift through you know, Bitcoin talk forum posts and uh, keep track of what was happening on Reddit and other social media. And, you know, within, I guess it was about a year, a year and a half later, I forked Bitcoin core myself and uh, created Satoshi, where I was basically trying to bring more transparency uh, into the operations that were happening inside of a Bitcoin node because I wanted to understand it better and I felt like there was probably some use for other developers to understand it as well. Uh, and then you know, put a nice uh, dashboard on top of that and uh, made Statoshi.info a you know, public dashboard where anybody can go in and kind of get a better understanding of what's happening on the network and what's happening inside of uh, my node. and. You know, it's all open source, so if anyone wants to, they can basically replicate that themselves and, and you know, run their own Satoshi node. And uh, then about a year after I did Satoshi, uh, that's when I guess there was another price run up. That was a like $1,000 run up, uh, you know, in 2014. And um, I just saw a lot of venture capital coming into the space and figured that I could probably get a full-time job. And that's when I joined BitGo in early 2015. 
basically spent three years there running a lot of their infrastructure, um, both the, the node operations and then various indexing uh, operations to, to create databases that the wallet platform could then talk to to figure out you know, what is the current state of the blockchain. And, um, and then at the beginning of this year, uh, pivoted slightly and you know, I'm still doing infrastructure for multi-sig, non-custodial crypto uh, um, products, but instead of having an enterprise focus where BitGo was really doing hot wallet stuff and helping exchanges and transaction processors, uh, instead we're, we're really focusing on the individuals at Casa and we think there was a gap in the market there. So um, just trying to make it easier for, for people who um, have, you know, they have come into a large amount of wealth that they never anticipated because they've been in the space for a few years and the value has gone up so much. And now I think there's a lot of people who are in a position where they're just like afraid, you know, they don't want to screw up. They don't want to lose all their money because they know that if, if you screw up, it's gone and nobody can help you. So we're, we're just trying to offer a product that can give people a peace of mind. Makes sense. And, um, since crypto is like super nascent right now and like we people say we are still in the 1995 of crypto right um even individuals like us who are who are techies and like we try to figure our, our way out um on like how to store a private key and like how to make our our phone secure and stuff like that how how far do you think we are from like a normal user uh being able to use crypto um, um, it might be a wallet or like running their own node because this is still like super early and like only for, for the geeks. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, definitely many years. Um, you know, the, the problem right now is that even though it's possible to be your own bank and, and do this all yourself, um, even the really sophisticated people, people, you know, technical people who have been in the space for years, um, and this is part of the reason why I joined CASA, um, even if you have all of the knowledge, which can take years to, to gain, it's still a big time, um, I guess, component of, of what you have to dedicate to do it right. And so um, what I was seeing myself, uh, you know, I was just like creating a calendar event where like, on, on an annual basis, I go through all of my cold storage and like refresh it and you know, make sure all the private keys are backed up, make sure recovery process works. And like doing all of that to like quote unquote do it right uh, was taking one to two days. So basically like a whole weekend. And you know, I don't wanna have to do basically uh, throw away an entire weekend every year, uh, you know, just to get a little more peace of mind. And I, and, and I was figuring, you know, if it takes me that long, then I suspect the vast majority of people will just look at it and throw up their hands and say, you know, I'm not even going to bother with all of this. Um, so, so that's why I think there is a big uh, gap there that we can fill. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what we've done so far at CASA where you can actually get uh, set up and onboarded with your your multi-sig, multi-device uh, wallet uh, with CASA in like five or 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's really what we've done is we've brought in the usability of what you get with a mobile app. Mm -hmm. But instead of, you know, keeping all the private keys on your phone, we're then leveraging the security aspects of what you get with the hardware key management devices like the Trezors, Ledgers, Keep Keys, Holy Cards, what have you. And kind of by like having a product that uses um, all of these uh, 
these different uh, features and, and functionality, we can actually guide the user through the best practices. So, you know, instead of like throwing a security book at them or, a, you know, IT data management handbook at them, we actually build the product in a way such that in order to use the product, you have to be following best practices. And I think that that is going to be the key for mainstream adoption is that um, instead of relying upon users to educate themselves, which only nerds are going to educate themselves about how to do stuff right, you have to build the product in a way that does the education you know, as they're using the product. Right. Unlike companies like Google who uh, <laughs> try to like get access to all of your data and like not serve the customer at all. Uh, makes sense. Yeah, and that's a hard thing to do um, where, you know, even this is something we talk about a lot at Casa. Um, we didn't talk about as much at BitGo, but mm -hmm. even when you're you're creating a like non-custodial service where you know we've already got a really solid foundation because we don't have private keys that can be stolen from us, so we're already like pushing the security out to the edges of our, our users. Mm -hmm. um, it, it still becomes a privacy issue of you know when whenever you're interacting with a third party you are giving them some data and then that data could potentially be leaked and used against you so you know right. we, we try to do as much as we can to minimize like even the amount of uh, you know personally identifiable information and then logging and other stuff that we do in our own system and that makes it more difficult for us because when you're developing web applications um, one thing that uh, not many people think about is that a lot of the developer tools and debugging stuff and um, analytics and whatnot that are very useful for software developers, it's actually surveillance software. You're mm -hmm. surveilling your users in order to better understand like when a crash happens or they hit an edge case and something goes wrong. And right. we, we don't want to surveil our users, but we do want to be able to help them and, you know, debug stuff. So it's a really, uh, it's a whole other issue that we try to find this uh, delicate balance around. Mm -hmm. Right, makes sense. Um, and so, so this is just like one of the techniques of, of storing your funds safely, right? Multi-sig. Um, but uh, what do you foresee, uh, like in the future, what other methods or what, what other strategies can an individual use uh, to, uh, uh, to keep their funds safe? Yeah, so, um, you know, one standard thing that a lot of people have talked about, of course, is just various types of, of metal um, backup, like seed storage stuff. Um, I, I actually did a stress test a few months ago where I bought a lot of the common uh, metal um, seed phrase storage devices and put them through the ringer. Um, you know, I think that a lot of them work very well and they will work, work very well for the vast majority of scenarios, like even a house fire or whatever. Uh, I just put I put them through an extreme stress test just to figure out what the limits were. Um, I think there we will hopefully see new ways of um, kind of distributing uh, the trust for for the this sensitive material. So even if you're not using multi-sig itself, like within one of these protocols, because actually a lot of them don't support multi-sig, um, then we may see kind of something that's similar to multi-sig, which is like a Shamir secret sharing, basically ways that you can split up the single sig or, you know, single key data in a way that you're distributing it around, uh, you know, a set of friends and family that you are uh, highly confident are not going to collude against you to steal all of your money. And, mm -hmm. you know, this, um, this becomes 
important not not just for redundancy of like natural disasters uh you know uh fires floods what have you um, but also for inheritance planning and that's another big aspect of what we're doing at casa is uh, that we think that while it is important to have really good security um, both historically through various analyses that, that some analytics companies have done and even anecdotally from what I've seen uh, over the past four years working in the space, it seems like you're far more likely to screw up and lose access to your keys than you are to have an attacker actually take control and steal your money. Right. Mm -hmm. so we Go need ahead. to help the user and keep them from shooting themselves in the foot basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I just like to put it out there that we had bought like one of your Casa Lightning nodes and like we personally follow Casa quite, quite closely. And what I would like to like uh, ask you is that um, like so all the current custody solutions, most of them are focusing on the enterprise and the institutions and even like Casa is fo focusing on like uh, high net worth individuals. Um, like how, how, which sort of solution do you see? Like say Shamir Secret is one. Do you see that Shamir Secret or these sort of solutions would be used by say a normal person who has say ten thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars worth of crypto, um, and they, that their wallet, their hot wallet, uh, could be protected um, by such a recovery mechanism? And uh, yeah, and like they, the that system should might be able to compete with the current say banking system. Yeah. So. Um... Once again, it's going to come down to how the uh, the user interface is designed. So, you know, when, when we talk about like Shamir secret sharing, um, unfortunately, right now, if you want to do Shamir secret sharing, you're probably going to have to go find a command line tool, um, or you know, um, even some of the the tools with UIs um, behind them that I've tried out. Uh, they're actually they're not even compatible with each other. It's like uh, uh, they're generally not implementing it perfectly in a way that you know uh, you can th then use another uh, tool later and, and be reasonably sure that you're going to be able to reconstitute the data. So yeah. we we have Shamir Secret Sharing, which is this fundamental building block that I think we can build other stuff on top of. Um, but that's the problem is no one has really built uh, good interfaces for using it. So, you know, it's, it's going to end up needing to be another sort of software layer, uh, you know, preferably within these wallets that, that says, okay, all you need to do now is, is go, uh, you know, get your friends and family members and, you know, say, have them like, you know, NFC, you know, touch, touch their wallet to your wallet and, you know, do something that's just a dead simple, like impossible to screw up from the user standpoint in yeah. order to, to, you know, shard out that data. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's where really, I think all the work is, is going to come into is how to um, abstract away all the complexities of, of that functionality and just uh, provide the user a very like simple step-by-step -step guide for, for how to secure their own funds. Yep, yep. And I think like even multi-sig, uh, like isn't that ideal? Uh, what's your thought on that? Like say if you want to do a lot of transactions in a day, um, yeah. multi-sig isn't ideal for that because you need to get like signatures from various places. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that, that's what any uh, security model, you have the trade-off between security and convenience. And so uh, Actually, we already do have a single SIG functionality within the, the CASA wallet software. 
Mm-hmm. And so figure, um, you know, when, when you set up a Casa wallet, you have, there's five keys. Casa has one offline. You keep one set of keys on your phone and then you have three other dedicated hardware devices. And uh, we were figuring that most likely someone is going to, you know, have those three devices geographically separated to make them uh, secure against both uh, physical attackers and against uh, various disaster loss scenarios. But it would make sense for the user to carry around one device. And so that device could be a part of, you know, the three or five setup for the vault, but it could also be used as a single SIG uh, wallet for their day-to-day spending. And so, you know, it is about, you know, supporting a variety of different security models, but doing so in a user-friendly fashion. So, you know, being able to reuse, you know, the same hardware device for multiple different types of, of, of uh, wallet security models, I think, uh, helps bring down the complexity while still giving more convenience to the user. Okay, makes sense. Um, my next question is, there's like a ton going on in the space. We all know that 99% of the projects are shit coins or like they barely do anything. They're just like marketing and like pure money fundraising kind of, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, schemes going on. But, but uh, having said that, there are also some really cool projects other than Bitcoin. Bitcoin obviously is the coolest, but there are projects like Monero, Decred, who are trying to do some really cool things like um, on layer one. Um, and even inside Bitcoin, there are a lot of cool uh, things going on, right? So there's like coin join implementation that's coming. And then um, uh, 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 even like even stable coins, we have projects like Maker who are trying to like build decentralized kind of, you know, stable coins. So, uh, so my question is, what are some of the things that you are really excited about uh, in the space? And what should like uh, a user or, or, or a high end user inside crypto look? towards you know to uh, to keep themselves updated so you know personally i am most interested in privacy technologies um, and also scalability technologies um, i mean from a really high level of like getting uh, crypto assets adopted uh, mainstream adoption it needs to be attacked from many different fronts um, and, and while scalability is one big issue um, it's like if you don't have the usability, then it doesn't matter how much you can scale because nobody's going to use it. But if you get awesome usability and no scalability, then you get you know, a bunch of adoption and then you run into a wall and nobody else adopts it. Um, and then, of course, there's also the you know, privacy aspects as well, where um, while not everyone values their privacy so much uh, in the long term, uh, we've generally seen quite a few different instances where if you forego your privacy, you end up regretting it later. So as a result, you know, I'm interested in stuff like Mimblewimble, which is a, you know, completely novel take on doing both high, high, high security, high privacy and high scalability. Um, Let's see, last I checked, they are about to launch their final and uh, fourth test network. So that's green coin, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's Grin. You know, there's also Beam, um, and you know, Beam mm-hmm. has like a different uh, governance model. It seems to be more of a Zcash style uh, governance model, whereas Grin uh, seems to be more of a Bitcoin uh, philosophy uh, style governance, where you know they're going to do a a fair launch with no pre mine and no no funny business, um, and. Uh, 
I, I think that uh, it's it's going to be interesting because you know even a lot of the uh, developers and contributors on there are anonymous, you know, kind of like Satoshi style, and uh, you know we'll we'll see how well that works. Um, you know, the economics behind it are also kind of up in the air because they're doing this like unlimited emission schedule, but mm. um, you know. Even if if you're not that interested in the the network itself, I think the technology is very interesting because you know anything that becomes interesting enough um, has the potential to, if not get actually subsumed by Bitcoin in the main protocol, by potentially getting like tacked on as a side chain, where uh, it would be very easy to to see some sort of Mimblewimble side chain to Bitcoin, where if you want the, the privacy of Mimblewimble, then you you just you know lock up some of your bitcoins and tra transfer them through a peg, and then uh, do whatever you want uh, much more anonymously on that side chain network. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, on a similar vein, uh, Lightning Network also promises to to have better privacy though it's a lot more complex to reason about and a lot of that is still up in the air as to how it'll work out um but i think that we're going to see this like explosion of innovation happen as second layers uh become more feasible mm -hmm. and that both you know through lightning networks and through side chains and um, mm -hmm. and you know uh there's also the the drive drive chain concept has been slowly progressing along. Uh, so, if basically if we can get to the point where it's easier for people or developers to uh, create these side chains in a way that seems to be reasonably secure enough that people would then adopt them, then that just makes the pace of innovation I think go a lot faster because. Um, up until this point, if you wanted to innovate in this space, um, do something crazy that's not going to get you know adopted by an existing protocol, then you basically have to start an entire new network from scratch, and that's uh, a really big challenge. You, you get into this like chicken and egg problem, uh, you know, having to to convince people to spend their resources to help you and and uh, you know get uh, adoption on various exchanges and 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 miners and it's like throughout the entire uh, complex ecosystem whereas if you can just uh, spool up a, a side chain that will hopefully be fairly standardized and easy for various ecosystem players to plug into uh, then we can start experimenting and not being as afraid of failing because you know if a side chain fails then all you have to do is you know get you, you can still peg your bitcoins back uh, like no, nobody's actually destroying money if it fails. It's not an right. economic experiment. It's more of just a technical experiment. Right, makes sense. And uh, what do you think about a project? Although, like, I'm not trying to like have you judge various projects, but I'm uh, I'm personally also like uh, super into like governance and like what the Decred project is trying to do on on the base layer. So, do you have any mm -hmm. thoughts on whether governance uh, is needed on layer one and like? Uh, what Decred project has been up to? Do you think that has value in the in the long run? It's it's an interesting thing. You know, some people care about governance and and feel like uh, they want to have a uh, a model that is easier to understand. Mm -hmm. And um, but you know what I think in any of these systems, 
are about from uh, a very fundamental standpoint is is you know voluntary interaction and so if people want to opt into a certain governance model then they have the freedom to do that um, the the weird uh, thing that I have trouble kind of um, keeping uh, a, a, a mental model around is you know if if the governance is about making uh, decisions that may be controversial, then I don't see how you can ever actually force anyone, uh, you know, to accept a controversial decision that they don't want to. Because, you know, even in a system that has various governance mechanisms built into the technical layer, you can't stop people from forking, you know, create basically taking the software and forking off their, their own new network. So, you know, it may make, make sense for like more uh, making like smaller decisions about certain things. I'm not sure whether or not there is a like technical solution for like major critical consensus decisions about the direction that any of these protocols are going to go in. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Um, and I want to move back to lightning. So like, like this year, I think I saw, watched one of your videos and heard you on the Noted podcast. You talked about like you are super excited about Lightning. So, like, can you share like how do you have what you have seen in Lightning? What sort of labs or what sort of work you have seen uh, done by LND, the C Lightning implementation, and so on and so forth? Yeah, so you know we've seen a lot of development happening at the actual like Lightning Node uh, software layer itself. Uh, you know there have been a lot of bugs. Uh, a lot of people have uh, found performance issues and fixed them. Um, you know as as people and developers have been writing uh, like the the first wave of laps, uh, and they've basically been you know stress testing the the, the Lightning software itself and uh, finding issues that need to be worked out, finding edge cases and, and bugs. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to see, you know, some people are like looking at the laps and saying, oh, these are all really, you know, stupid ideas, you know, this isn't changing the world, but, you know, it's really more proof of concept of, of just, um, you know, putting some transactional volume onto the lightning network to, to try to, to, you know, stress it a bit more. And I think, one of the things that's going to be more interesting about de developers that are coming into these second layer networks is that they're, you know, not necessarily going to need as much uh, guidance, I guess, as uh, as writing stuff on the first layer, where uh, you know, to create a Bitcoin application actually requires setting up quite a bit of infrastructure. Um, right. You know setting up the nodes, figuring out how to, you know, manage private keys and all of this stuff. But, but as we're building these other layers on top of Bitcoin, um, I think it's just becoming a more developer friendly experience. Um, so uh, a good example of that is, uh, I guess, Satoshi's place, uh, the lightning koala, who is the developer behind that, um, has said that, you know, he's just running that on a raspberry Pi in his closet at home. And, you know, it's, this is supporting, uh, you know, thousands of users uh, a day, you know, at its height, um, constantly, you know, redrawing this canvas and uh, processing, uh, I don't even know how many, like tens of thousands of transactions. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge, you know, money making entrepreneurial uh, 
uh, venture for him. I, I think, you know, he probably made a few hundred dollars off of it. Um, but it showed that, you know, this is a new type of, of business model that, that you can, uh, can run. Yep. Yep. And like in the sense of say wallets and exchanges, um, how, what sort of progress have you seen? And like, even in lightning, uh, say a normal, normal people start using lightning wallets and they start doing lightning transactions. How do you see that the nodes, what sort of companies or will the, uh, will, will run the nodes and uh, do you feel that even if say if we have 1 billion people uh, who we have hyper bitcoinization and we have 1 billion people using uh, bitcoin and they are transacting through lightning what sort of infrastructure do you see uh, we'll have at that time yeah it's so it's, it's going even to get to that that level is going to require a lot more optimizations um and this is where i think we're seeing um stuff that's happening like with l2 for example of trying to figure out how to do like mass channel management um because of course you know the lightning network is complicated you know it's bitcoin plus a whole bunch of other stuff and um no one has ever really done anything like this before so as we're uh stress testing these networks we're finding various usability issues and economic issues uh you know there was actually a good talk about uh the logic behind channel rebalancing recently at scaling bitcoin we had a number of talks about um, how to manage uh, you know channel opening and closing uh, at a large scale and i think that in general what you're going to see is uh, people uh, you know writing software that is better able to manage uh, you know multiple users of single channels basically uh so you know i think that will be very critical for any of the large uh, providers whether it's uh, exchanges or 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 payment processors or what have you uh you know rather than having to manage you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of channels uh being able to consolidate uh a lot of those users down into a, a smaller number of more manageable channels which hopefully well, then also be easier to, to manage like from a liquidity and economic standpoint. But, you know, there, there's a lot of new things that people are, are, are playing around with, uh, like the various like channel splicing uh, stuff and the, the multi, what is it, the uh, atomic multipath uh, payment stuff, um, where essentially what this is all coming down to is, you know, figuring out kind of like a new economic model that we're having to deal with. It's, uh, it's a bit more complicated than just like on-chain Bitcoin transactions. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so what do you, what do you feel about, uh, uh, like possible flaws or, or any, any foreseeable events in the future that might, uh, try to bring the Bitcoin network down? It might be like a state level, DDoS or I don't know there were there was like a bug recently right one seven one double four what in your mind what do you see uh, like some of the challenges uh, are in front of us uh, you know for the entire Bitcoin ecosystem uh, to pre prevent it from a collateral damage kind of scenario yeah so well there's also the question around like is there any one thing or event that could uh sufficiently damage bitcoin um and and i think it's not so much like what 
what could be done to uh, screw up the network from a technical standpoint, but more of what what type of attack or failure could cause such a loss of confidence that uh, it makes people uh, stop wanting to invest in it, stop wanting to participate, uh, stop wanting to you know dedicate their time and resources into making it a better uh, network. And so that's why my my general answer to like what is Bitcoin's greatest weakness or greatest threat is uh, is apathy. Is that you know if if people stop caring and they stop trying to make it better and and stop. Uh, being willing to basically, uh, you know, be uh, at least for some of the developers, you know, be like operational on call. If of like, if there's an emergency, you need to be ready to drop whatever is going on and 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 fix the problem, because uh, the longer that some sort of critical issue is out there and affecting people, the the greater the the confidence loss is going to happen. Um, so, you know, you, you can worry about various nation state level attacks. You can worry about various technical failures. Um, I actually wrote extensively uh, nearly three years ago about a number of uh, adversarial conditions that might happen on Lightning Network and, you know, different types of attacks. It would be more like um, economic attacks of like a wealth fund trying to push a lot of, of funds through the network in, in one direction to like try to, you know, imbalance uh, many, many lightning channels to the point that they're like forced to close and then, you know, creating a lot of on-chain congestion as a result of, of that, which could then, you know, create kind of a vicious cycle uh, due to the, the game theory and, uh, you know, timeouts uh, that are involved in, in channel closure. So uh, it's, it's I, I try to think less about like these specific things that might happen and uh, more about the like the the general awareness of well you know we we just need to have a a mindset within the community that you know this is an adversarial system and we need to be willing to accept that it is not um, you know it it's not uh, perfectly robust that it can withstand any attack on its own, but rather it's anti-fragile because there are many of us out there who are remaining vigilant and are willing to step in and fix problems, you know, as they arise. So it's just, I think it's more of a mindset than, than anything else. I don't think that there's going to be any magic bullet that will make uh, these systems like perfectly robust uh, against all types of attacks. Okay, well, then what do you think about uh, mining centralization and like one company like Bitmain taking control of um, all the mining hash bar? Although, I mean, all they can do is just double spend, right? Uh, right even right. if they do a 51%. But, um, and I, I'm like, uh, like hopeful about the fact that like, I'm sure in the future, there are going to be more companies. There are already companies like Obelisk and others who are developing ASIC miners. But uh, do you see this monopoly breaking up in the future and not posing any threat? Yeah, so, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, Bitmain in particular has been running into a number of walls. Um, it, you know, it, it sounds like they haven't really been able to innovate that much uh, on the hardware level. You know, I think that they've basically run into the threshold of what, like, our silicon processing technology can allow you to do. So I'm, I'm hopeful that from that perspective, it will be easier for other entrants to uh, come into the market and compete with them. And, and, you know, yeah, um, you know, mining centralization is definitely one of the bigger uh, questions and, and threats to worry about, uh, you know, 
from a game theory perspective, like I'm not worried about uh, any of the large pools or or Bitmain or, or whatever, um, basically doing something to try to kill Bitcoin because they basically be shooting themselves in the foot. But I would be more worried about uh, you know what happens when another attacker like a nation state comes in and basically seizes a bunch of uh, pools and equipment and and then uh, uses it to run attacks at very very low cost uh, because they have you know they can use their monopoly on violence basically to uh, to to take over uh, and 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 run those attacks but you know even in that scenario it once again comes down to how resilient is the entire ecosystem to such an attack and. You know, if even if that type of almost doomsday scenario happened, it would be noticed within a few hours at the most. And then what we would see is a lot of people would be scrambling and coming together on various communications channels and saying, okay, you know, this is an existential threat. We need to do something about it. And uh, the, the ultimate response to anything like that is some sort of code change that, you know, changes the rules because people, uh, I think in a situation like that, we would be able to agree that if we don't change the rules to, you know, get this bad actor off of the network, then the network is doomed. So uh, I think there's always, there's always an answer, you know, to, to every problem uh, in this space. It's just a question of like, how do you come to consensus about, uh, about actually moving forward? Yep, yep, that makes sense. Um, and I'm just curious, like, what's your thought on proof of stake? And do you do you see like what are the advantages and disadvantages? And should like someone uh, in the Bitcoin community also think about working on proof of stake? Yeah. So, well, even you know, proof of stake is tricky because there are a ton of different variations uh, on proof of stake. But if we're, we're just talking about, okay, you, you own a certain number of tokens in a system and then you can basically use those tokens to be like an authority that, you know, puts them up at risk. Uh, and as a result, you are saying, you know, these transactions and blocks on the network are valid. Uh, and if everyone disagrees with you, then you lose your coins. Um, you know, first of all, that's a very different security model. Uh, but than, than proof of work because you're using value inside of the system to secure itself. Whereas proof of work uses uh, resources and value that are external to the system to secure the system. Um, you can then, it, it starts to become almost more philosophical then about, uh, you know, does that mean that it is, more fair or more competitive when it's external resources because that means that anyone theoretically can go and you know get uh, electricity and 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 build hardware that they then add to a proof of work system to compete with the existing proof of work uh, uh, participants whereas if you want to compete in a proof of stake system you actually have to go and buy out uh, the existing token holders so um, it, it, it kind of creates a model where the people that are already in the system have a lot more power. It's harder, you know, it's harder to compete with them because you actually basically have to buy them out. You have to, you know, put more, more money into the system itself to get more of those tokens in order to compete. Um, so the, even Vitalik Buterin um, 
has referenced the quote unquote nobility problem within proof of stake systems. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not so sure that there's really like a solution for that, but uh, some people may not consider it to be a huge problem. Yep, got it, got it. And like, uh, so we are talking about proof of stake and you talked about Vitalik. And how, so how do you see other altcoins and other projects as well? Do you see that, say we have Monero um, and Zcash, Decred, they are working on some specific problems. We have Ethereum, which is building like a smart computer or a world computer, which you can run smart contracts. Um, and we have ton of other ERC20 projects. So how do you view the space? And do you, do you feel that in the long run that they, these projects will add actual value to the crypto ecosystem? In general, I think the projects that have a more narrow focus are probably more likely to achieve their goals. Uh, you know, one of the, the things with like Ethereum being this general purpose computer is that I don't think that it's going to be able to do everything for everyone. Uh, I don't think, you know, anything can be everything to everyone. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as a result, um, it's, you know, kind of finding its own identity, uh, you know, over the past year or so, Ethereum basically became um, an ICO um, generator. Um, you know, what will it become next? I, I don't know. Um, it's, you know, I, I think what any of these systems are going to be, um, they are going to facilitate whatever actions are of the greatest economic value to the people using the system. So, you know, I think there's a reason why, um, why ICOs became so popular. It's because they brought a ton of money into the system. Um, you know, while, you know, stuff like CryptoKitties was you know, popular for a little while, it's not, it's not something that's ongoing because, you know, this is a resource constrained system. And if, uh, if crypto kitties are fighting for block space resources and CPU and gas resources against ICOs that are, are pulling in tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, then obviously the, the, the people that are generating many, many, many millions of dollars are going to be willing to pay more for the resources on the system. And they are essentially going to you know, price out the less economically valuable uh, interactions on the system. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a number of these projects will continue to be successful. Uh, uh, like I said, I'm most interested in the privacy projects. Those are also very narrowly focused, so it's a lot easier to judge, you know, whether or not they have been successful at, at achieving their goals. Um, but then these more you know, general projects that are trying to do all kinds of stuff. Um, it's a lot harder to judge, I guess, uh, how well they're able to, to achieve, you know, the, the goal of you know, being a, a generic world computer. So my, like, with regard to Ethereum in general, my kind of thesis is that um, value has been shown that, you know, it's, it's valuable to have this uh, Ethereum virtual machine, you know, this developer-friendly scripting smart contract-esque language. Um, what is less clear is whether or not Ethereum will succeed more as a general protocol and uh, scripting language or as a main network itself. And what I mean by that is that um, the, the EVM has been adopted by a number of other projects. Um, uh, Hyperledger, uh, RSK, 
um, uh, and and I think a few other like private blockchains, for example, because it's valuable, um, and I can see that continuing to happen. Um, but just due to like the scalability issues in general, it it may be that you know the protocol itself becomes more widely adopted because you can then have, you know, a thousand different networks out there that are running Ethereum compatible stuff. Uh, whereas the main network may or may not be able to eventually scale up to, uh, to process everything that everyone wants it to do. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. And like, uh, like when you work with Casa, you deal with a lot of institutional clients and high net worth individuals. How do they see these coins? Because what I've, what I've observed is like people who, got into crypto in like 2017 or, or 2018, they actually are believers of ERC-20 tokens and Ethereum. And it's very hard to tell everyone like about Bitcoin maximalism and like why Bitcoin uh, will succeed in the long term. So do you feel that uh, like what sort of response are you getting from high net worth individuals? And do you see that like say uh, hedge funds or institutional people who are wanting to create this sort of portfolio, uh, they, they would buy into these uh, shit coins. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you can't really categorize everyone into, you know, one single bucket because there, there's a diversity of different people in the space. And, um, you know, at Casa, we are a Bitcoin first company. Uh, we, we do want to help people just secure their private keys in general for anything that is valuable. Um, but, you know, we've even had issues with Ethereum and, you know, their multi-sig uh, functionality or lack thereof uh, where, you know, we're, we're trying to, to basically get some consensus around uh, a standard for, for multi-sig on Ethereum uh, so that we can actually uh, integrate that into our product. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when you start talking about people that are more focused just on the investment aspects and they want to invest in, in this ecosystem as much as possible, then yeah, you also run into folks that are more along the uh, like almost index fund style stuff of like, you know, I want to invest a little bit in everything and hope that I find that next, uh, the next Bitcoin, you know, uh, ride the bubble basically. Um, but in my experience, like the, the folks who are what I would consider to be like extremely experienced crypto investors tend to come at it from the mindset of, yeah, I'm investing in these other things, but I'm doing it because I want to end up with more Bitcoins. So it's really just a psychological thing, right? <laughs> Is that they're, they're trying to get in before other people get interested and then they want to get out before the, uh, the interest uh, wanes. Right. A lot of these pumps and dumps are essentially that, you know, people are just trying to steal Bitcoin from, from folks who have no idea what they're getting into. and They just end up sitting on a bag of a shit coin. Um, anyway. Okay. So one of my other questions is, so like TCP, right? HTTP is built on TCP, right? And TCP was never built with the privacy in mind, right? And now 30, 40 years down the line, we are seeing this gigantic internet in front of us, which has like no layer of privacy inbuilt. And then there are these corporations, pretty much like data thug corporations who are stealing data from every place that they can. And they're trying to sell the data, work with the governments, and then try to make money off of it and like help their spying buddies and whatnot, right? So do you think we are at a verge as humanity, we are at a, at a, at a cusp of like building a protocol where we have 
uh, like privacy as the number one thing and then everything else is built on top where, where you don't need voter IDs, you don't need driver license IDs, you just have a pseudonymous uh, identity and like uh, that's like reviewed wherever you go and like based on that you, you get all the services. Do you think we are heading in, in that direction or do you think that's just like a utopia? Uh, it's certainly more utopistic and very long-term view right now um, because, you know, the fundamental problem is that you have to get buy-in. Uh, you have to have, you know, enough inertia uh, for, for those type of systems to gain value because you're essentially cre you're recreating, uh, you know, these existing networks from scratch. And so in the vast majority of cases, we're talking about recreating what is essentially, you know, government-controlled networks. And so how do you do that, uh, you know, without some sort of violent overthrow of the government? Uh, I think that means it's going to be a, have to be a much more longer, natural, organic process where these distributed networks build up reputation over years and decades and generations, and that eventually it just becomes a no-brainer that governments end up using these, much like how, you know, governments are now providing a lot of services through online websites, right? Um, it just, it needs to become a mature technology that people trust uh, due to its history and longstanding reputation of being trustworthy. Right, um, okay, so, so, but you foresee like, let's say 100 years down the line, there are definitely gonna be like governments that are falling just because they can't print any more money and their coin is a shit coin in itself. And people like start like trading their goods and services in Bitcoin or let's say any other coin that, that becomes number one. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately what I want to see is to um, create more free markets where, uh, you know, to take Bitcoin as an example, we're finally creating a, a, a free market money where governments have never really had to compete um, with regard to money before. They just dictated how the money worked and the citizens had to do it. But just by simply having competition in the first place, I think will force governments to provide better services. And, you know, whether or not that means that the governments or some of them or all of them will, you know, collapse and fail, or maybe it just means that they will become better. Um, this is kind of like the thesis of the sovereign individual, right, is that, um, that uh, by forcing governments to compete more, they will they will continue to exist and offer services, but they will have to uh, offer even better incentives and services to try to get people to want to uh, you know be the citizen of that government. Right, and um, so do you think we are like heading towards a regime where everything is a transaction fee and there are essentially no taxes, right? Because like in India, from an entrepreneur standpoint, there's like a 35% corporate tax and then you give dividends or you uh, you give salaries to the employees and they pay another 20 to 30% tax. And then there's the 18% GST on top of it. And then you pay tax on any road that you cross. and like what not so you're essentially paying 50 to 70 percent of your income in taxes in india yeah. where, where yeah. you're getting a service pretty much similar to a government in nigeria so like uh, i i can't like not pay my taxes right so do you think like uh, are we like heading in a direction where where we are going away from a tax regime and more of a transaction fee regime well uh, that's also where i guess privacy would come in right is having the deniability um you know, if, if the government can't trace all of the transactions, then they can't tax it. Because, um, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, the, 
the ways that governments operate is almost entirely through fear. It's not actually through actual enforcement because governments, they seem really powerful because they concentrate a lot of power, but they are actually have very little power in comparison to the entire citizenry in general. Um, it's not possible for a government to throw all of the citizens in jail, for example, uh, if, if, you know, if, all of the citizens of a country decided that a certain law should no longer be a law and they just stop obeying that law, then the government can't actually, you know, punish everyone. Uh, you know, from that standpoint, you know, the more like natural organic governance of whatever the consensus of a population is, I think is, uh, is more important. But of course, you know, the, the fear and the monopoly on violence is, is where they're, they're able to, to coerce a lot of people into doing uh, whatever they, they think is best. But um, what's certain is that stuff is going to change and you know, technology continues to uh, evolve and, and accelerate and you know, we, we can only make uh, you know, uh, general guesses at the direction that it seems to be going in. But um, the, you know, the reason why a lot of us think that, that governments may be doomed is because historically, you know, they're so bureaucratic and so slow to react to things that it seems inevitable that technology is going to outpace the ability for them to just keep up with. But yeah, I think uh, that's an interesting perspective um, on like how Bitcoin and governments would, uh, like how things can happen. Um, and I'd, I'd like to close this talk by talking about stable coins because uh, they, they are the current news topic. Um, and so what, what, what do you see about the current stablecoin space? And uh, do you see that like Bitcoin has been moving in the 6,000, 6,500-ish uh, range? Um, do you feel that we, like, we need stablecoins? Uh, what sort of purpose do you see they will serve eventually in the future? And I, I'd like to particularly ask about DAI as well which is sort of like uh, an open sourced uh, stable coin, which runs on a particular set of code that people can see. Uh, so is, is DAI the one on Ethereum? Yep, yep, Maker. Yeah, that's yeah. the Maker platform. MakerDAO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, personally, I don't see a need for stable coins. Like if you're trying to escape the volatility of Bitcoin, then you can you know, use fiat. Um, I guess the, it's more like having a fiat that you can then transfer on your own. Uh, you know, have some of the properties of, of a crypto asset that is like public and permissionless. But um, I don't know why you would want to, uh, to hold on to a stable coin for a long period of time. It, it seems to be uh, make more sense to maybe use as a transfer of value mechanism uh, for short periods of time. So there's also just the fact that, you know, stable is such a loaded and relative term. Um, you know, nothing is actually stable. It's all relative to something else. And over the long term, uh, you know, these things are pegging themselves to the dollar usually. And over the long term, the dollar is going to go down in value. I mean, it's, that's inflation. Like that's one of the fundamental reasons why this whole ecosystem got started in the first place. So um you know, I think, you know, it's, it's great that people have the freedom to build their stable coins and offer them as products, but that, you know, a lot of them are flawed and they're, they're going to fail for various reasons. Um, you know, even uh, DAI, I guess, on Ethereum, um, uh, that seems to be doing 
reasonably well from a volatility standpoint. But once again, you're building it on top of Ethereum and the Ethereum network has been like constantly congested for, uh, I want to say almost an entire year, if not longer at this point. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure how, like how much a great like adoption it's going to be able to get, uh, because it's on a kind of shaky, uh, you know, technological platform there. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, I'd like to close off by just talking about the Bitcoin price. Uh, what, what do you think will trigger the next bull run for Bitcoin or do you see that we'll have this, like say a bear market for one, two years and then a bull run, or we see a steady growth happening or any thoughts you have in the price? I mean, the only real thoughts I have are that you can't predict it and, and okay. that, um, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, like historically, what tends to happen with price is that uh, it'll it'll be you know fairly stable for a while, but that most of the volatility happens uh, within like ten different days. I want to say out of the year will be the vast majority of volatility. So like when it shoots up or it crashes down, these events tend to happen very quickly, and you can't predict them. Um, and so, you know, that's why, yeah, sure, we've been stable for like a week or a few months now, but at any time it could shoot up or it could crash down and, and you know, then sort of set a new price level for a little while. Um, so, you know, I try uh, not to, to focus too much on it, but it definitely feels, you know, I've been through like three or four of these boom and bust cycles now. And this definitely feels like it's the like slow creeping along until something big is going to happen. So how long is that going to be? I seriously doubt it's going to be a two-year bear market simply because we're so much larger than we were uh, before the last two-year bear market. There's so much more going on behind the scenes. And I think we're going to continue to see big news coming out to like large players like Fidelity, for example. Um, there's a number of other large players that have been running Skunk Works projects for a few years now. I think those are going to start to come out into production use. And that's when we'll see, you know, more mainstream adoption happening. Yep. Yep. Got it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Jameson, it was great talking to you. Uh, I and Vishal, we learned a lot. Um, and yeah, I, I hope that you like keep posting and keep contributing to the community with the passion you have and you maintain that passion for a long time. And thanks for taking right. the time. Really appreciate it. Yep. Yep. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.